Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Okay, Newt. Hello, Howard. What's up? What are you wearing to Manchester? Soccer? Manchester City. What is the difference? Well, they're two teams from the same uh, from the same town, and, and it's a grudge match every time they get together. Got it. And did you play soccer? I did. Does Norway even, do they play soccer? They have a country team? They do. They're not very good, but, you know. I was not even going to imply that they were good. I, that's, I, I assumed, I didn't even know they had a ticket yeah. field 12 players. They kick ass in pretty much any Winter Olympic uh, goes, but, but soccer, no. Yeah, if there was a, a thing where you could shoot players and then ski around the field seven times and then shoot more players, that would be Norway's sport, like speed skating. They have that, with guns. except you're just not allowed to shoot players. I mean, <laughs> skiers. I mean, cross country, man. It's a, it's an interesting sport. Yeah, it's called biathlon. Oh, right, biathlon. So, uh, speaking of biathlon, we have somebody who's good at two things. <laughs> See, that not a planned segue. No. But he's so busy. He has no time for us to riffraff at the beginning of the show. Right. I stormed in here. You were giving, you were reading him all the rules of podcasting. He seemed to have taken it okay. I don't know who you know you're he's talking very to. Gracious. You can't just be bossing him around like that. Oh, I do. That. So uh, hopefully he stayed on the phone and we can call him <laughs> back here in a little bit. But uh, Rick Heinzman, he is a founding partner at uh, First Mark, which is a big New York uh, venture capital firm. And they're like full stack. Like, you know, there's full stop when you want to make an emphasis. They're full stack. Really? Which means soup to nuts across the board investing in tech from seed now to a SPAC, from seed to SPAC. That could be their new tagline. Huh. Cut that out so he doesn't from take that from me. From seed to spec. I like it. been known to take things from me. So uh, Rick is here. He's in New York. He has uh, been hit hard family-wise with uh, COVID. So uh, so he, he, he's got some firsthand uh, sad experiences, uh, traumatic experiences from that. But we're going to focus on the wins. Good idea. Obviously, there's losses. You're a venture capitalist. You have losses. But the wins are endless. DraftKings, Airbnb, Pinterest, uh, StubHub, Shopify. That's some impressive names there. Yeah. And and yet, it took them 200 episodes to get on my show. That's how popular we are. Got a stack of winners like that. And I got... Uh, I think you just hung up. Yeah, it's okay. He's a good guy. He's a, he's a good human. He's always giving me good advice every time I see him. So uh, let's dial up uh, Rick Heinzman. Hey guys, how are you? Rick! What's going on, Howard? Uh, we are uh, podcasting. I know you have a list of things too close, too far, to right, to left from your mic, so I appreciate you listening, not hanging up on Canute earlier. You know, I do my best. Be yeah. a kind and generous soul. You are a kind and generous soul. Now, you are in New York? I'm in Greenwich Village right now. And give me a take. It's cold, it's getting cold. Uh, you've had a rough COVID year. I've had a rough COVID year. I appreciate you uh, putting that out. Uh, but, you know, and New York's had a rough COVID year. Um, you know, people generally took off in, in the spring. Uh, they kind of came, you know, there was obviously the social unrest and part of it that, you know, the whole country saw, which was difficult on so many levels for so many people. 
over uh, the second quarter and into the summer. And then, um, you know, as as things started to come back to normal and, and 2020 seems to have taken a couple of turns for the better uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, things have gotten better. And New York, especially in the fall where it's so beautiful and, and still warm and you could sit outside, was fine. But I think this is going to be a long, cold winter, um, you know, both in terms of uh, New York City and overall. It's going to be hard um, given the spike in COVID um, and the ability to not no longer really sit outside at New York restaurants. It'll be interesting to see where we go. But despite that, uh, I think the New York startup scene remains hot. So we got that going for us, which is nice. We got that going for it. And Philly, tough year for Philly sports. I mean, you're a Philly fan. You're a Philly guy. I'm a Philly fan. I'm a Philly guy. Hasn't been that great. I think Daryl Morey trusts the process. He's bringing it back to Philadelphia. We've had a strong draft. We're going to have a strong offseason. And I know your friends at DraftKings have us at 30 to 1. And I think that, that that's the easiest money you'll make all year, Howard. 30 to 1. And Embiid to win the uh, MVP. All right. Just uh, will you? How much do you want me to put on that? And you just Venmo me whatever you want me to bet because I know you're probably maxed out on all your accounts. Um, I'm in New York. I can't even I can't even play, participate. But uh, you know, you uh, I'll tell tell you I'll tell you off the air. Uh, Mortimer, I'll, I'll want one dollar. The, the so when you saw DraftKings, it was before yes. all the. St- I mean, now you're saying like it's New Jersey, but not New York. So what was it about? the team or the idea and the timing that made you say, all right, you know, New York, could you imagine it be this market cap without New York? So, uh, yeah, so separating into two things. So yeah. I was involved with a lot of the major leagues. Um, so major league baseball, the NBA and the NFL, I served on the digital advisory board for the NFL. I was an advisor in major league baseball and, you know, the sports got to a point where you could only so, charge so much for tickets, so much for merch. You could only sell so many beers. And they were thinking about alternative revenue streams. And, you know, we were talking to about, you know, gambling and daily fantasy as key parts of their revenue streams. And it was very clear that this was the direction that the world was going. And this was probably seven, 10 years ago. Huh. And, uh, you know, we met with both DraftKings and FanDuel, and I was incredibly compelled by Jason Robbins, who's, you know, the founder and CEO, still the CEO and, and founder, you know, years later. And although they were actually the second player in the market at the time and FanDuel was bigger, uh, I thought Jason's vision was incredibly clear and I thought they were going to be the long term winner. So we supported him then. And then a lot like uh, like a lot of our companies, even the most successful ones, they had several periods of existential crises where the New York Attorney General almost shut them down. There was a merger with FanDuel that got uh, held up by the FTC. Uh, and obviously everything going on this year with COVID and sports shutting down and everything else, but you know, actually uh, created a lot of grit in Jason. I think he was already a gritty guy, but he was able to lead the team and lead the company throughout all of this and, and be unfazed. And I think, you know, we uh, we agreed to a SPAC merger almost a year ago. And then despite COVID and despite its tumultuous market, they started trading in April. And I think all of the other near-death experiences Jason had would say, you know, who cares if sports aren't going on? Who cares if we're going public in a non-traditional way? Who cares if, the, if Nasdaq's down? We're going to go and we've executed through adversity before. We're going to continue to execute through adversity. And, uh, you know, the stocks perform great. So, you know, I guess getting to the second part of your question, 
uh, you know, how, how are you valuing DraftKings today? You know, I, I think you, I think you're looking at, and if you look at some of the banking research reports, they're looking at, hey, what does the company look like in 2025? You know, states are loosening gambling restrictions as every state partially due to the current economic environment related to the pandemic, is facing significant budget shortfalls. And I think they're looking for alternative revenue sources. Uh, the clearest ones are going to be gambling and cannabis, two of your favorite things. Yep. And, uh, you know, that will open up um, avenues for, for DraftKings to grow. You know, one of the other derivative effects of the pandemic is some of the landed competitors that DraftKings has of the casino operators were, were incredibly hurt by everything going on. So they don't have, they have neither the focus nor maybe the capital to expand. And I think the company and Jason in particular has used this time to build, you know, over a billion dollars in cash. So to be able to open up products and open up markets that um, the broader public markets and the analysts believe that DraftKings is not only a pure play, but is also going to be the leader in online gambling in the U.S. And a lot of what the current valuation implies is, you know, being a leader in the in the in the pure play uh, U.S. gambling hub is going to be worth a lot. And I think it's I think people are looking at 2025 EBITDA multiples to come with a normal valuation. But conceptually, that, you know, having that leading market position in a big and growing market is an incredibly valuable asset. Well, congratulations. I had Jason on the podcast and he yeah. mentioned a lot of VCs, but not you. So uh, kudos for having a low ego there. <laughs> Are you on the board or not? I'm not. The The near-death experiences are incredible, and you've obviously dealt with this hundreds of times as a VC and founder yourself. So, you know, the way I run this podcast, I start with one question, who knows where it goes. That's my job to kind of just mm-hmm. go with the flow. So, because you, you're a public market investor, you understand all this. You founded a big company that we'll get to, and obviously First Mark's a huge firm. What are the assets today, just quickly? Oh, uh, in committed capital, I think about $3 billion. So $3 billion. So, and was SPAC, you know, you we joke around on Twitter, was SPAC something yeah. that you snickered at the first time DraftKings brought it up? Because everybody had to approve that. And so I'd love to know if that, because First Mac now, you and I have chatted, you've given me some, some, some great advice and insights around SPACs. Is SPAC something that was just like foreign to you? until the DraftKings thing came up? And when did the switch, so two questions, and then when did the switch go, go off to say, wait a minute, not only is that not a bad idea, First Mark should have one. So it's probably three phases. A couple of years ago, uh, Jason and I sat down with, the, with uh, wound up being the SPAC sponsor and had dinner. And at first, uh, first I didn't understand it at all. Um, and then you know, it kind of got laid out to me that I thought, this is interesting. I'm not sure if it's compelling, but we should figure out more. Uh, Jason, you know, dug in and he actually understood it more quickly, more completely than I than I did and was able to explain why, why this was not only a clear and compelling and innovative case, but it was also a good fit for DraftKings. And probably a year or so ago, maybe a little bit more than that now, as it became clear that DraftKings was going to go public, it became clear that DraftKings uh, was going to be a big company that you know was going to need cash as it was going to grow into uh, as you know states were going to open up and as this opportunity opened up that you know 
the case for a SPAC became much more clear. And, you know, as he figured that out, I was able to learn from him and and have kind of a front row seat as everything unfurled. And as I understood it more, it became very clear that not for every company, but for a good chunk of companies, no different than a direct listing or a traditional IPO, that that's the right way, right thing to do. It, and it's the right thing to do for for a bunch of reasons we could talk about if you want. But you know, it was very clear it was the right thing to do for DraftKings at the time. And then this was probably last December, the deal was announced. And then I started thinking about what does this mean? What could this mean for kind of the future of companies going public? Was this a one-off or was this a trend? And especially for some of the best companies, I think historically SPACs didn't partner with the best companies. But you know, DraftKings being a market leader, Jason kind of kicked open the door for people to consider SPACs seriously. Um, you know, again and again, despite market being down, sports being generally off, uh, Jason was able to have a great introduction to the public markets with, with the SPAC merger in April. And I thought you know, people are taking this seriously. The innovation Jason has shown has reflected upon his leadership positively, and it wasn't seen as kind of a quirky thing to do. And therefore, hey, this is really interesting for maybe other companies to do. Um, some of the things that people had criticized SPACs for before in terms of research coverage, DraftKings was able to get research coverage. It was able to execute a couple of very successful secondary offerings on top of its success. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, hey, this is a great product for our companies. And then as I talked to some of our companies about it, I thought, this isn't only a great product for our companies to use, but this would be a great way for us to do it. So it was almost, uh, you know, it was almost fumbling around. And as I started talking to people, we almost kind of got a reverse inquiries from some of our best CEOs who said, that sounds interesting. Tell me a little bit about what Jason did. Oh, I might want to do that. Why don't you do that? And uh, after thinking about it over the summer, it did make sense. And it did make sense for a lot of the reasons we've outlined that, you know, we could be a partner with companies all the way as early as the seed, but all the way through their growth trajectory through seed and early funds into their growth phase into the public markets. And especially companies, founders, teams that we've known for a long time, it's an opportunity for us to deepen that relationship in a more crystalline way. So uh, we, we think it's a great opportunity. We learned about it over the last kind of several years, had a front row seat for probably the most successful SPAC. And now we're excited to think about what that means going forward. And so you guys did one yourself. So, so tell me who led that for your firm and, and uh, kind of dig in as, little, you know, as much as you would like about that. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I led I led the SPAC process. I guess I'm, a, I'm formally the SPAC's CEO, but my partner, my co-founder, Amish Johnny, and I kind of do things together. So we've we've done it all um, together, whether it's the capital raising, the strategy, and now even um, working with, thinking about, and discussing the targets. Um, and then obviously the benefit the first mark has is we have a deep and broad partnership. You know, we have excellent investment partners with Matt and Beth and Adam who are deep in their own subject matter experts, the rest of our investment team and our platform. So that kind of helps us, you know, figure out, you know, not only the specs, to tar- not only the targets to have, but also diligencing them and hopefully wrestling one or two to the ground over time. But, you know, as we went through that process, you know, it, it was a fair it was a fair amount of work. You know, we had to. You know, it actually was help helpful in defining why are we doing this and why us, right? So, you know, unlike like every other investor, as they're sitting there, and no different from LPs and venture funds, 
um, you know, they sit there and they sit back and they listen to your story and they say, why is this important? Why is this a big market opportunity? And why are these guys the right people? And, you know, having to having to write the box for the S1, having to do the management presentation, then having to talk to investors, you know, it helped us clarify the story, even in our own minds of why, why we thought, you know, first mark with the experience we have, um, and then the ability to be able to provide that deep partnership through Sages to um, entrepreneurs, and then being able to bring our whole team to bear made sense. And then also, you know, what other people can we bring into it? So we talk about, you know, we'll talk about Jason a little bit more that, you know, Jason's part of our, our founding group of our SPAC and serves on our board of directors. So, you know, how do we bring the best resources to bear, including, you know, probably the best entrepreneur who's gone through this process in the world? Fantastic. So it's a first mark branded SPAC and that, that allows you to call yourself full stack platform, right? So the name of the SPAC is, is first mark. First, yeah, first mark acquisition corp. Yes. So it's first mark branded. It's the same, you know, it's a, it's uh the founders are, are me and my partners and Jason and uh, you know, it, it's kind of aligning all of first mark with the success of the SPAC and vice versa. And I'd love to get, and maybe I'll do it offline with you, but I wonder how much I can share here. Cause I'm researching all this. And so we joked about, we don't smoke, don't care. So I don't invest in it because I don't know what the hell I'm not a user. I don't invest in the gambling stocks, own some DraftKings shares just because of Jason and the size of the market and the brand, but I don't gamble. Not even five bucks, just doesn't do it for me. And then, and I don't really use crypto, but I own a lot of crypto. So the only thing that is interesting to me in the last truly 10 years in finance outside of trading is the SPAC. So then now that you have the SPAC, it's the subject I talk about the most because it's just so interesting as a financial tool, is the conflict. So obviously, disclose, disclose, mm-hmm. disclose. You're a VC, I'm a VC, you've been a founder, I've been a founder. Mm-hmm. You just disclose, disclose, disclose. Is your setup to just look at first mark companies or it can be any company? It could be any company, but we're not precluded from doing a first mark company. So obviously, the first mark companies we know the best. Oftentimes, we've been shareholders for years. Oftentimes, we serve on their board. You know, a lot of those times we're even the lead director on the board, you know, but we're not the only director. So, you know, there's obviously fail safes in place. We, you know, we own, um, you know, not not even close to the majority of these companies. They have independent directors. Uh, our SPAC also has independent directors. So, you know, we don't think that there's um, a broad conflict of interest. And if there was, we'd recuse ourselves. But, um, you know, it, it is interesting. I think some of the benefits of First Mark and being full stack is not only being able to see those companies, not only being able to see those companies over time. And, you know, obviously you miss a ton of stuff. We've, yeah. we've, we've had as probably a complete anti-portfolio as anyone, we should probably be more public about it. But we've made you know terrible mistakes of omission. Um, the, the good thing is, oftentimes we've met with those companies, we've built a relationship with those companies, and we've been able to circle back and say, "Hey, we we really made a mistake in the Series A. We really made a mistake in the Series B. But we'd love to participate now." And we've had the good fortune of of people wanting us along for the ride um, and being part of the First Mark family and being part of the First Mark network and ecosystem. And I think the same thing's going to play out in the SPAC that, you know, whether it's companies we're investors in or just founders that we're close to who believe that we're going to be able to add value to their company as a shareholder that, you know, maybe even as a director, I could add a little bit of value or Amish could add a little bit of value or whoever it may be. 
I think that's going to be a core part of the story that um, using the affinity, using the brand, using the network of first mark, hey, can we be more helpful than the next guy with a SPAC? You know, in a world that we've talked about, the next guy seems to have a SPAC now. Yeah. And we can joke about it. But here's the truth. We went from the roaring 90s and we all have stories. Uh, you were probably much bigger than I was back then. But it, it, roaring 90s where there was crossover, right? You were excited to get your company yep. public. VCs probably held. I know Fred Wilson did and Brad Feld held companies that went public because they were going public fast. And then they imploded once they were public. So no one made money or the money was on paper and then it was disappearo and mm -hmm. the headaches that ensued. Then we had the long period where VCs didn't want anything to do with the public markets. And I think that played out longer than people thought because the VCs were like, eh, if it goes public, we'll distribute the stock. Uh, I don't want, I got burned once. I don't want to know once my company's public, see you later. And we saw that with Shopify, the VCs got out right at the IPO. Whoops. And now we're full circle where VCs may actually be behind the ones that like shun public markets because they got burned in 99 because now we're crossing over again where a SPAC brings in, you got to understand the public markets a little better because more money could be made in the public markets than the private markets if this trend continues. So it's pretty cool. It is, it is pretty cool. And it's also that the trend you're talking about made, made the, the gap between the public markets and the private markets really stark. Crazy, boy. Crazy. And, and, you know, even like famous entrepreneurs, if you look at Zuckerberg, who, you know, shooed the public markets, that created a whole class of entrepreneurs who also wanted to shoo the public markets. So you have to be able to understand what that gap is. And, how, and so the entrepreneurs don't want to do it. So I think a lot of VCs turn their backs to it. And then how do you bridge that gap is an important thing. And it's everything. It's how do you bridge that gap on communications? How do you bridge that gap on an IR? How do you even talk to your own employees about what going public is, what you could tell people? All those things that a lot of VCs said, hey, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to look at that. I want to be focused on my own area. And then public market investors are like, hey, these guys aren't speaking my language. What's going on, Rick? You're serving these guys up to the public markets, but I can't really understand what you're saying. Um, so we actually noticed that gap being bigger and bigger. You know, we've helped take Pinterest and, and Shopify and big companies public and, you know, kind of walk them through the paces. And even much so that we actually did, uh, we actually launched at Firstmark earlier this year, something we call public school. And what that huh. is, is, you know, we, we, thought, we thought we were a bit clever by saying, hey, we're going to take the school year and the calendar year and put it together a class that has a syllabus that has materials and we're going to have guest speakers come in and we're going to talk about you know what it means to be private versus what it means to be public and as we do that we're going to say um, you know here's here's what communication means you know let, let me let me tell you, what, you know, what does SPAC mean what does SPAC stand for what are equity capital markets how do you form a syndicate of bankers that we're going to take you public what what should you expect from them what should you not expect from them what are, what are little secrets that people have done before that you want to know now? And, you know, part of this came out of um, when we introduced um, Ben Silberman, who was thinking about going public to Toby Lute, who is you know, recently public. And this is years ago uh, as the CEO of Shopify. Um, and Ben's Pinterest. Sorry for people who don't know. Ben. And Ben's at Pinterest. Yeah. And uh, because and they're both very thoughtful guys who you know, really want to understand a process and really want to make sure they're doing a great job. So we said, you know, you guys, you guys are thoughtful. You're very similar. How do you, you know, you can maybe think through that and Toby, you could provide some advice. And Toby wrote a, a long, thoughtful piece 
but he he started off with um, you know the TLDR Ben is you know going public was not one of the top ten most difficult things that Shopify has done, but it was one of the top three most annoying things. And it was because you're entering into this financial transaction, often the most important financial transaction of your life, definitely of the company's life so far. And it's so different from what you'd expect. It's different from all your private financings. The communications are different. The people are, are so different. And, you know, as you know, the public market's much more transactional than what you'd say in a VC perspective because they could buy your stock, whether you like it or not. There's not a whole lot of selling going on as opposed to in the private markets. And, you know, the whole look and feel is, is quite different. And, you know, how do you prepare yourself for that? Because it's kind of like, you know, if you knew now what you knew then, especially ahead of that transaction, it'd, it'd be incredibly different. And even the way you'd feel about it would be incredibly different. Awesome. So I wrote a TLDR about my kids, same thing. Not the hardest thing I've ever done, but definitely the most annoying. So Toby and I probably have a lot in common. The, the, Man, Pinterest, Shopify. I'm trying to think where to go next. So, so I think crossover funds like that. Uh, I've become a huge fan of Altimeter and some of the mm-hmm. spinoff people out of Altimeter. I think with this new SPAC world and direct listings and more IPOs and maybe earlier IPOs and more creative things on the horizon as interest rates stay low until they start rising, let's say, and then all bets are off. So there's a general assumption there. And there's a general assumption that uh, we don't tighten, yada, 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 because we got Yellen and we got all these new people that are coming in uh, uh, post-election. So in that world, the crossover fund becomes interesting. So in that world, this first mark, have to become a crossover fund because you're going to have to not distribute stock of companies that may go public that might have been $5 billion in the private markets, but now are $3 billion and public. So what do you do with that? Have you thought through that? And then the second question, sorry, I'll let you ramble, is, is that syllabus open source or is that behind a first mark paywall? Are you going to open that up about going public? Oh, so public public school isn't behind a, a paywall. It's behind an invite wall. But we're going to open up some of that. I mean, we're still trying to figure out, you know, especially we had Harley, who's the president and co-founder of Shopify, speak to the group last week. I'm sure there's some things he said he wouldn't want to have wanted to say if it was out there in, in the broad public. So there's things we can make public. There's things that we're going to probably keep just for our own group and the participants in public school. But yeah, I'm happy to share all of that as it becomes available. That'll be cool. Um, yeah, so I think that, and, and it's and it's unique, right? I think just the fact fresh. that we're able to to get all of just the basic stuff of all the account, you know, accounting firms. Here are the things. Here's the timeline and how to prep prepare your finances, your systems, your Sarbanes Oxley compliance. You know, before you go public, and even as we're talking to SPACs targets, there's people who haven't even thought about you know getting a couple of years of audits done who think that you know, they should be a public company. And there's just some building blocks that you have to sequence, which some might be non-obvious to a lot of people. They're not obvious to me. So, you know, how do you, you know, what to expect before you're on the other side, because things come at you awful quick there. Awesome. All right. So we'll come back to that. So, so then the next question is crossover. So how do you deal, for example, with DraftKings goes public, you just some inside baseball for people that run a fund or are thinking about one day working yeah. at a fund. What's the inside baseball? How do you decide what to distribute and and mark to market and ring the register on 20, 25% versus distributing, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard choice to make because 
<clears throat> as venture capitalists, we're not, you know, we're not paid to be public market investors. Um, and oftentimes, especially a lot of the companies are going out now, whether it be the DraftKings or Airbnbs or even Pinterest, you know, Pinterest, we in first invested 11 years ago and you know, we're fully distributed now. Was but, that the A know, round it, it, after Shana? Did, so who, it was the, it, it was the seed right before Shana. So, so it was, uh, we did the everybody. seed and then, yeah, then it was, a, you know, another seed, another, then we actually did, it was an unfilled, you know, going back to, you know, everybody thinks everything's always up and to the right. I think we, we did the first seed. Then there was a seed extension that I don't think was that we were able to get fully filled wow. just because uh, no one knew what it was, but it was, it was Shanna, it was Scott Belsky, it was a couple other great angels. And then, uh, Jeremy and my our friends at Bessemer, you know, wound up doing the A and, and, and the rest was history and it kind of took off from there. But uh, so how do we think about it? So again, our early stage funds, you know, have been holders for a long time and something like that. And, you know, it's our job to not show markups, but, you know, give capital back to our investors, our LPs. Mm-hmm. So we want to be sensitive to that. Um, we also want to be sensitive to the guys in the public markets who are, are so smart about lockups. So, you know, they, there's a lot of people who track all these lockups. They know that, you know, there's people who want to get out as soon as possible. They've made a tremendous return. And whether it's employees who were single when they joined Pinterest and they found a partner, got married, had a couple kids still at Pinterest that, you know, need to buy, um, you know, apartments and things for their kids and everything. So, you know, there's people who need to sell, want to sell that they know is going to come off lockup. So obviously all the shorts come out, coming into lockups. And people trade around them. So we, we generally like to be patient and say, you know, let's wait for the chop to stop. Let's wait for there to be an orderly shareholder transition. Um, if you look at historically, especially consumer internet stocks, they tend to go up when they're first listed. Um, retail tends to come in more there. And then they kind of trade down into the lockup. And then as the shareholder transition occurs, the stock tra- tra- tends to trade up kind of going into around the year holding. And that's a, a, obviously a broad generalization. Yeah, if the company is great, kind for of, sure. It's like, if, yeah, if the company is great, as, you know, if there's no news, if they don't miss, if they don't do something crazy. Um, you know, we tend to hold to the point where the chop's over, you know. Although our shareholders have been obviously very patient with us if we've been holders for a decade, that um, being a little bit more patient will pay off. So we, we don't want to be uh, you know a, a bit too frenetic and we, we want to be thoughtful and distribute after the chop's over and get them back their capital. Um, but I think it, it maybe our later stage funds would be more thoughtful about you know when they're getting out because the, the, you know they haven't been in as long. And then I think as a SPAC sponsor, being able to think about, you know, has the company, no different than a private company, achieved its milestones, done the value creating things we, you know, you thought it would be able to do, had an orderly transition of shareholders, um, and kind of realized the value you thought was there. So there'll probably be a long, obviously, you're, you're going to, you're already a public security that you're holding, but, you know, you're going to come off lockup and then you'll think about how that, how that capital is, is traded out of over time. Very helpful. Thanks. So it sounds like it's, you know, Team Tam, I forget all the things. I should know all these things. Hor- uh, jockey horse track. Jockey horse track. So obviously, it's worked every way for you. Are you a Are you a jockey guy still? I'm a jockey guy still. I think they, I mean great people. Great, you know, we we've we've found great people create great markets and big markets that you know a lot of a lot of the companies we invested at the earliest stages or even later on. Um, you know, there's been TAM questions, but great people expand the TAM, great people create markets. Um, yeah, you know, we invested a, a long time ago 
in StubHub, and, and Jeff Floor was was a great um, entrepreneur uh, then, and he's you know he's a great VC now. But when I did the diligence on that, we thought the secondary ticket market in the U.S. and again, this is probably 15 or so years ago, maybe longer. Uh, we thought the secondary ticket market in the United States was, you know, about a $1.2 billion. So it might have been too small to be a venture market. Huh. Uh, but we liked Jeff a lot. And we saw what was going on. I mean, before, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, StubHub sold for $4 billion. And I think, although it wasn't public, it was doing about that in in total total GMV and total sales. So that company wound up having... Uh, you know, revenue or, or gross merchandise value uh, that was over three times what we thought the total market was because how they grew, how they changed, and how they expanded the market. And I think a lot of that was on Jeff. So if you have a you have a good jockey, they'll they'll set off their own, on their own path. So when you talk about the anti portfolio, yeah, I agree with you. So when you talk about the anti portfolio, is it because you read the jockey wrong, or you got sidetracked on the track or the horse? Uh, and name one example. Should, name one example that just rats. You're taking it. You're in your robe. You've got uh, you know the the bath water running, and there's you know <laughs> wine dripping out of your ceiling into your mouth. Why? And you're someone's feeding you grapes. What's the one that you're like? Oh, I could have higher end. Well, grapes. you know, I, I listen. I was thinking about um, your your pod a, a bit ago with, with Chaitan. You know, we we saw MongoDB early. Uh, we saw it at the seed. We saw it. The, we saw it every round. And obviously, that's a great New York company now. Um, I think that that was kind of not really understanding the open source market and where that was going to go and how that was going to monetize and how it was going to be big. So I think that was a market question. You know, obviously we like Dwight and the team there, that founding team a lot. And I think we didn't probably crystallize how, how a great team could build a market and drive revenue in a great market. I think that's, that's probably a broad open source, um, learning that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, people were like, well, how are, you know, how are you, if you're going to give away the software for free, how are you going to make any money? Those are stupid businesses was, was the bear case. And now there's tens of billions of dollars of market cap just in the top couple of public companies. And there's only a few open source. So are you bullish on open source as, as public companies eventually? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that that, especially the new managed service business models, um, you know, as open source has gone from being kind of a uh, a hobby and a startup thing into being, uh, you know, a full enterprise price class thing, I think, you know, we continue to be bullish on it. I think it's early, you know, third or fourth inning in a long-term trend that's obviously completely correlated with the cloud, the shift to the cloud for major enterprises. I'm going to hop around because I just don't have enough time, sure. but we'll, we'll get you back is, is, um, cause you have three kids, right? I do. And six, 10 and 16, six, 10 and 16. Are any of them taller than you? My six year old is actually, <laughs> no, my 16 year old is, is a bit taller. <laughs> yeah. So in a world where Chathans exists, we were joking before is like, he's 35 yeah. years old and it's like, Jesus, I, I wish he was my kid. And because, yeah. you know, but my kid's great at golf, hate school, you know, one, you know, like, how do you, as someone who judges talent for a living, if you're a jockey, if you push chips behind jockeys, how has it made it easier or harder to be a dad in that environment? Because you got three jockeys of your own at different yeah, phases. No, they, I they, struggle they, with the most this one. By far the most important jockeys and most important people uh, in my life. So 
uh, you know, my son, who I is going to listen to this later, I was going to have him be here, but he, he was uh, doing other stuff. Um, you know, he would say, I, I push, I, I push them more that, you know, as is, you know, someone who's constantly working with jockeys, you're pushing jockeys to, you know, go faster, think more, don't make, make less mistakes. Um, and that I, I think it it might make it a bit harder on my kids as I'm continuing pushing them to be better jockeys or um, maybe being overly critical of them when they're not being perfect jockeys on that day. Um, and I think they I think they realize it. I, I try to have fun with it, being like, oh, you know, sorry about that. I didn't, yeah, I, I realize that was that's not the end of the world. I realize you're ten. It shouldn't be expected <laughs> of you to to do that. Um, and they say, yeah, yes, of course, you're an insane person. But yeah, I think it's, uh, I think, they, yeah, I think it's hard not to, it's hard. You, you're, you're one person. You can't have a complete dad mode and a complete venture capitalist mode. But hopefully, hopefully it makes them better jockeys over time and better people over time. No, I, I what I meant to was, is like, there'd probably be a great book that I should do one day, The Kids of VCs. Like, I just don't know. Maybe there's just not enough data, but someone should be thinking about this. There'll, be, make, enough, there'll are, are, be enough data, and how the. I mean, I know I know VCs who treat their kids like they're CEO of startups, and they push them really hard. And I know dads who are like, "Hey, man, I I, I just I just whip the jockeys at work. You know, you guys should hang out and eat ice cream and play Xbox." Right. Um, I struggle so with that it's, one. It, it's a range. I know. I know. There's there's a couple a couple of VCs. Uh, you know, Bernard from uh, Balderton, I think is an excellent dad. I actually hit him up for dad advice and his kids have been um, both very nice and very successful uh, young adults. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think he probably has high, I, I think having high expectations for your kids um, will always be a good thing and how, and how you, um, how you message that and how you treat them on a day-to-day basis will be the hard thing. And, yeah. I mean, this is, love to talk about that subject more with all my guests is is that uh, we we're around such highly motivated people all the time but then we go back to our regular lives which is most of our life and it doesn't work that way or or it works better but uh it's not the same as what we expect at work i just want to end with the future a little bit first of all the firm sure. three billion how many people at first mark we'll have about 25 and is it all new york yes Back when there was an office, we're all we're all in uh, Union Square together. I think you've been there. Yeah, so, you know, right in the middle of everything in New York, and I believe and hope that we'll be there uh, in the medium term. You're bullish on New York, as am I. Yeah, I mean, I mean, especially as as it seems like there's significant structural issues that were going on before all this in San Francisco. Um, I think that will only benefit New York. And I think, uh, you know, New York, you know, there's some people who are already starting to say that they're, they're getting ready for a year from now where the roaring 20s will return to New York. Yeah, especially on the creative class. I think if prices yep. can figure out a way to allow the creative class in, it would be quite an incredible place. Because I know my kids are dying to go there. Same thing happened 100 years ago after the Spanish flu, the, um, especially downtown in Greenwich Village where I live in New York it kind of blew out a lot of people and there was some residual stuff and what wasn't safe for a little bit and uh rents dropped by 50%, you know, I don't know, probably went from a dollar to 50 cents, you know, in, in 1923, but you know, it, it really ushered back in and, you know, Grangeville has always been a, um, a fluctuation as New York went, you know, as rents dropped, creative class moved in, you know, brought more vibrancy. And then, um, 
you know, as, as the city got safer or the economy did better, um, you know, more non-creatives or, you know, finance guys come in. Um, so, you know, I think they, I think New York will, 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 will benefit from the 2020s and the roaring 20s of this century. And I also think kids want to go there, right? I mean, if I, if I, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I was graduating from college today or, or, you know, engineering school anywhere in the world, if there's a better place to go as a young person than New York City. And, you know, I definitely wouldn't want to go to San Francisco. Um, I definitely wouldn't want to go to the peninsula. Um, it's not the right place for a, a 20-something-year-old. But <clears throat> New York and all the boroughs and all the different areas of it, and whether it's having a creative class or, or, or being with a, a good group of your peers for socializing, uh, and then being able to do whatever you want to do and having a diverse group of friends that's not a monoculture that people definitely criticize San Francisco for, you know, historically Los Angeles for, uh, and having a, a diverse group of people and friends to be able to do stuff with and having, you know, the fastest growing startup community would be by far, I think your kids are making the right choice. Great. I totally agree. want to end with the future. I mean, I think you're over 50. No, no. Come oh, on, man. What are you, 49 Come and on, a half? man. I'm 48. <laughs> you're 48, so you're almost there. You have the hair of a 50-year-old, the color. I have the hair be old enough to be treated instead. <laughs> what is it that gets you excited today? Obviously, founders get you excited, but is there a, you know, it's hard to, I'm struggling to learn new things, but I'm 55, and in, in seven years is a huge difference. The One year becomes 10 over 50. But being 48, having the wins, uh, building the firm. Uh, you obviously have to bring on new talent to keep the first mark thing going. You learn new things like SPAC. But what about sectors that, one that surprises you post-COVID that you are excited about now? Mm -hmm. And what do you know in your heart that you just want to focus on the next 10 years? Uh, so I'll say, you know, building, building out first mark, I think we're definitely at an inflection point. That, you know, you start a firm, you have one product, and that was the early stage product. We were able to layer in five, seven years ago, a growth product, now layering the SPAC product. And we have some other ideas of things we could do. That's always exciting. Doing something new as an entrepreneur, you know, keeps it interesting. And, and that's new. And that and I'm really excited about that as a firm. Um, but then as, as sectors, I think there are two sectors we've been excited about that have been accelerated by um COVID and the pandemic. Um, one was video games. Yep. And we've always been um, big video game investors. We're the first investors in Riot Games, which creates League of Legends, which has been the biggest video game of the Owned last by 10, 10 years. Now. Owned by Tencent now. We yeah. sold to Tencent probably too early. Mm -hmm. Definitely too early. It's okay, but great company. Great company. You know, we're investors in Discord. We're invest. You know, we're investors in Merge and Payments. We're investors in Planomics, which sold wow. to um, Unity. So we've been all over the video game ecosystem, and I think that ecosystem is going to continue to do well. Um, and just with my son, it's you know how he consumes media. A good portion of his media is video games. Um, and I think that's going to be that's that shift is going to be permanent. However, video games are, are going to come come around with uh, AR and VR and everything else going on. So I think that's a trend that I think we're still in early days. And if you look at just the numbers of Twitch or any video game platform over the pandemic, um, they're going to be huge. And going into what's going to be COVID winter, where there's going to be a lot of time inside, I assume, especially with the console upgrade cycle, that's going to be an enormous, enormous sector over the next couple of quarters. Wow. And then I would say differently than that, um, we were also, you know, big proponents of uh, the changes in healthcare. 
So obviously everyone's always talked about how the U.S. healthcare system is screwed up. I'll probably say, you know, all the healthcare systems are are kind of screwed up and between the government's participation and payers not being customers and everything else. But the amount of information which is available on individual healthcare is increasing. Uh, Deductibles are increasing. So people care more about what they pay for healthcare. So you know more, you care more, and you have more data. And the availability of data will have help people make decisions. So we believe that you know healthcare is going to change fundamentally. It's going to be more personalized. It's going to be directly to you, and it's going to be much more patient focused. So you're going to hopefully be able to pay less to get a higher quality of care, which will matter a lot. So you know we're investors in Ezra. We're investors in Roman Health, which has a full suite of services. We're investors in Clara on the infra- infrastructure side, and you know we think that. Post-COVID or during COVID, the desire to have telemedicine, you know, with Roman or to be able to not have to go to a pharmacy to get prescriptions filled or the ability to just communicate electronically with your physicians and healthcare professionals is going to be important. So we think kind of we're in a we're in an unbundling slash rebundling of healthcare in a direct-to-consumer perspective. And I think you know that's going to have legs for a long time. So I'm excited for those sectors, which are so big and are so transformational to find you know, new people who, uh, who are just as excited about them as I am. Well, if I was moving to New York and I was 20, I'd be banging on First Mark's door. I may do it anyways. You should. Uh, you know, it's, it's good here. You got to bring Lindsay off the bench for a First Mark spec. Great. <laughs> so the, Go to the bullpen out of Arizona, the young kid out of Arizona. The young kid with a hang, that I've just known for one thing, a hanging everything, curve, slider, fastball, <laughs> all hangs. Everything I do just Let hangs. it all hang out, man. <laughs> the floater. The uh, <laughs> one final thing. Yeah. Um, what is the, the one time that you, I mean, the show's packed with friends. It's been no panic. Obviously, you've had just a year of stress and panic with the family. But in terms of pre-COVID, was there a moment you just remember panicking about just the business you're in or an investment or your own company when you were an entrepreneur? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was an entrepreneur, you know, uh, post 9-11, you know, internet company where, you know, I... we had a you know existential crisis that um, after September 11th, the revenue was down 93% for the month. And we at thought we advantage. had about a year of cash at first advantage. And yeah. it was called you a search at the time. We thought we had a year of cash. And then when revenue dropped so much, we realized in the beginning of November um, that we actually had about six weeks of cash. So NASDAQ's down 40%. Um, you know, investors all over all over the world are, you know, focused on is the internet for real or not? And uh, everyone's licking their wounds, even the, the, you know, the nation, the world was licking their wounds over September 11th. And I found, find out at the beginning of November, if I don't raise three and a half million dollars by December 18th, we're out of business. And, you know, that's just going to keep us in business for a little bit. So, uh, you know, that was, that was a, a full on panic, a, a complete panic. And it wound up taking us uh, 87 meetings to raise $16.7 million dollars. Which is uh, it's a, it seems to be an average size seed investment these days. Um, but it, it took all the way from then to March fifth to be able to kind of right the ship um, and actually start us on our path. You know that what you know wound up leading to over a billion dollar outcome on the other side of it a couple of years later. But um, you know that was the panic, and I would go to investor meetings and they would just yell at me about why is everybody that works in the internet so stupid and why did everyone destroy so much value. Um, and, you know, they didn't want to invest. They just want someone to beat on. And unfortunately, I was there that day. I've been there, man. Yeah, that, that was a that was a full on panic. 
Um, yeah, but I think, you know, as you, as you, I know you care deeply about all your investments and, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff that happens and there's, there's different ways that people, um, get concerned every day of this is their life, right? You know, there's, there's founders who said, Hey, I've spent Joseph, the founder who I'm, I'm very close with, um, but I'm not an investor and went for a walk with her the other day. And uh, she and COVID kind of kicked her ass a little bit. And she said, you know, hey, I, I put 12 years of my life, my blood, sweat and tears in this business. I'm not going to let it fail. And she did a great job, um, you know, raising money, writing, writing right size in the business. <clears throat> I think it's going to be a multi-billion dollar public company. But, you know, it's just all those stories of, you know, you're always close to failing. You know, StubHub, you know, was close to failing. We were getting sued by everybody. Um, you know, Pinterest, we thought we were going to run out of money a number of times. Riot Games thought we were going to, you know, probably less than a year before we sold, before it became the hottest game in the world, uh, we thought we were going to have to close up shop for a variety of reasons. So, Almost all of the companies which you care so deeply about, whether they're they're seedlings or whether they're companies you think are going to go public, go through terrible times. And you know, you hope that as an investor and a board member and a friend of the company and hopefully a mentor to the entrepreneur, you feel you feel that not as deeply as them, because that, you know, you, you probably can't recreate that feeling, but you know, you empathize with them and see that that's a really tough day, year, month, quarter, whatever it may be. Awesome way to end it. You're the man. I appreciate all the time, Rick. We'll get you back on no to problem, talk man. about investing. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. All right. See you. Thanks for your friendship. Bye. There he is, Rick Heinzman. I mean, how do you top these? There's like day after day, these guys with like home run after home run and firms and stories. It's inspiring. It is amazing. It truly is amazing. Yeah. Every 10 years, there's a form of COVID whether it's a market crashing or a pandemic or financial crisis or... It's always some cog in the wheel. Some cog in the wheel. First mark, takes a long time to build a brand. Takes a long time to see a lot of great companies, but um, very optimistic outlook. You know, video, I think it's the same thing. It's video games and the markets are partly a video game in healthcare. I mean, if you want to get in the business and start investing, those are the two simplest areas to focus on. You don't have to be a genius at tech. You just have to kind of play the games. And then with healthcare, you just got to, you know, go look at your past bills of your family and see how screwed up the system is and, and work backwards from there. This is Panic with Friends, Canute. Thank you. You're welcome. For putting this together. That was Rick Heinzman, First Mark Capital. We will put up uh, how to find Rick on uh, the links that go with this. Um, Panic with Friends. If you got Spotify, Apple, Google, just subscribe. We do two a week. Uh, about 45 minutes with great founders, investors, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, traders, talking about the future, talking about panic, talking about how to stay in the game and make a living at this and kind of pursue the investing for profit and joy lifestyle. Thanks, Canute, for putting this together. Thanks to StockTwits for distributing and housing all this and pushing it out there. And we'll see everybody on the next show.